Welcome back to the program. Many years ago, Harvard Business School perfected something called the case study method, an educational innovation that presents the challenges confronting companies, nonprofits, and government, complete with the constraints and incomplete information often found in real business issues. Students learn that through the process of exchanging perspectives, countering and defending points, and building on each other's ideas, they become adept at analyzing issues, expressing judgment, and making difficult decisions. My guest, business journalist Sean Silkoff, in his new book, Losing the Signal, about the rise and fall of RIM and BlackBerry, does his own case study. But it reminds us that in real business situations, unlike business school, there are no simple solutions. Personalities matter, and we see how easy it is to go from leader to irrelevant in an economy that values creative destruction far more than the status quo. Sean Selkoff is an award-winning business writer with The Globe and Mail. He's won many awards during his distinguished journalism career, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new book, Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. Sean Silkoff, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. I want to put this in, in a little bit of perspective and go back to 2009, a time when BlackBerry controlled almost 50% of the, of the smartphone market to today when it has less than 1%. Talk a little bit about that first. Well, absolutely. Uh, you, by the by, the mid to late ninety or two thousand, sorry, um, BlackBerry, as it's called today, Research in Motion, that had, had really had an incredible run. This was a company that uh, started above a bagel store in Waterloo, uh, Ontario, which is a small town in Mennonite country, about uh, an hour west of Toronto. And they were able to do what some of the biggest and most aggressive technology companies in the world weren't in the 1990s, and that was to marry wireless data with um, um, with a device that people would want to use in their hands. Apple tried it with the Newton. Uh, you saw uh, Ericsson with a Viking Express. IBM tried it with Simon. Um, and even Palm, everyone remembers Palm's uh, brief moment in the sun in the late 90s, all put uh, tried to put personal communications devices in people's hands. Typically, they were expensive, they were bulky, uh, and they were expensive to use. And one of the reasons was because they really um, ate up a lot of uh, network space for the carriers. Well, BlackBerry came along and uh, developed a, a very effective, efficient um, thing called the BlackBerry, um, a device people used to send emails. And it was so easy to use and so efficient and relatively inexpensive that it just really took off. Uh, within months after it was, uh, it was released in 1999, you had um, you had CEOs and Wall and Wall Street traders. Uh, they couldn't get it out of their hands. They called it the CrackBerry. They made them jump to smartphones in the early 2000s. Um, and by you know by 2006 2007, they were really on top of the world. Um, everyone wanted mobile email. Uh, they were uh, they were so successful that Silicon Valley realized that this was a market they had to get into. Apple shows up, uh, Steve Jobs makes the announcement of the iPhone in January 2007. He saw that this market uh, for smartphones was going to be so big and change the world so much um, that he dropped uh, the word computer from, uh, from the company name Apple Computers. From now on, it was just going to be Apple Inc. And, um, um, and this was all because of this little company from an unlikely place that was able to really change the world, change the way we communicate. Um, so, so what happens at that point is, uh, you know, once Apple arrives, we could talk a bit more of that. It, it, the response uh, that RIM had to the 
to Apple and then to uh, and then to Google coming in really sort of marked its downfall. And what's so remarkable is that even in in the summer of two thousand seven, BlackBerry is flying high, as you say, rim at the time, and Jobs introduced the smartphone with all that it can do. And there really wasn't a sense of urgency or a sense of panic on the part of BlackBerry at all. It was like, yeah, it's not a big deal. It, it's really quite remarkable when you think about this. Steve Jobs shows up. He has this device. RIM delivers a small piece of the Internet very effectively in email. Steve Jobs is going to deliver the whole, the whole Internet on a, basically a tiny, stripped-down Mac computer in your hands. Michael Lazaridis, the co-CEO and their technologist, looks at this thing and he says, you know what? It's going to eat through too much battery. It, your battery's going to only last a few hours. It's going to clog up the network. It's not that secure. And hey, you have to type on glass. Mike didn't like typing on glass, and he knew a lot of people who, who couldn't couldn't fathom the idea, really. And the amazing thing is he was right about all of those things. But what they didn't really appreciate was how much this was that sort of the old rules that RIM had kind of written with the, wire, with the wireless carriers around the world, how much those weren't really going to matter with consumers. Um, they quickly realized, everyone started to realize that Apple really had changed the game. And one of the first was Verizon, because they didn't have the iPhone. AT&T had the iPhone for four years, an exclusive. So Verizon said to Rin, geez, can you give us an iPhone killer? Mike thought he could do Apple one better. He, again, he didn't like typing on glass. His uh, response was a touchscreen phone that worked a little differently from what people are used to now. The entire screen pushed down. Imagine, for those of your listeners who never saw what the storm was, the entire glass clicks down. It makes a clicking sound. It's basically the BlackBerry version of a touchscreen because you get that click. You get that satisfying feeling, or so the theory went. Verizon loved the idea. Rim said we can do it. Unfortunately, they had a very short timeline to deliver the phone. It was late. It was buggy. It didn't really work that well. People didn't really like it. And uh, the most important thing to come out of that was that Verizon didn't have its Apple killer. So instead, they turned to a little company from California you might have heard of called Google, uh, which partnered up with Motorola. And they did deliver what uh, Verizon was looking for. It was called the Droid. It came out a year later. And that was basically the giant hole that was uh, blown into the side of the, the rim ship. And everything kind of, you know, that one-two punch, like Apple put them up on the ropes, and Google kind of delivered that that uh, that punch, and um, everything sort of started to devolve from there. The other aspect of it is that as innovative as as research in motion was, that after the storm came out, as you say, it was buggy, it didn't really work, it had problems, that they weren't able to adapt to that. I mean, it was an environment in which things came out in beta all the time, and improvements were made. And you could still salvage it up to a certain point, but they were unresponsive in that regard. Well, that's one of the things we we look at in the book is is really they did actually respond. Um, Mike tried to perfect the storm. He went back. He did a storm two. He did a storm three. Eventually, the carrier said we don't want that. He thought we need a better browser, so he bought one of the best browser companies uh, he could. That was uh, an open source based uh, browser um, called the Torch. That didn't port well onto the BlackBerry. It was a slow experience. So he said, well, we need to do a new operating system. So we bought a company in Ottawa that uh, built the, um, uh, some of the building blocks for some of the most uh, important systems in the world, uh, uh, QNIX, which uh, helps to power the Internet, really, through the routers that Cisco uses and nuclear power plants. So they did make a lot of moves. Um, the problem is that inside the – one of the problems was that inside the company there was a split taking place. And that's because this amazing partnership between the two co-CEOs, Jim Balsilli and uh, Mike Lazaridis, was really um, hitting a difficult patch because – 
um, there had been um, there had been a major patent uh, dispute that had really uh, left both of them uh, reeling. And then there was an options uh, backdating um, uh, situation, and uh, what happened there, which we detail in the book, really led to um, kind of a loss of um, really the, the relationship came to a came to a bit of an end between them. I mean, they still continued to run the company, but what you saw come after that was a real um, uh, a real dysfunctionality build up inside the company to the point where, in their last year there, Jim and Mike were essentially championing. Um, opposite strategies for how to take the company forward. Mike thought that the company needed to double down on handsets. Jim thought, you know, our future is in things like instant messaging and software. Um, and you could argue that Jim was uh, at least partially right because look what happened with WhatsApp. Uh, it was bought by Facebook for $17 billion. WhatsApp uh, followed BBM, which BlackBerry created. It was the first mobile instant messaging app and it, um, it arguably the hottest app on the uh, on the internet. And it's almost like BlackBerry didn't appreciate what they had there. Talk a little bit about the board of Research in Motion and how they looked at what was happening to the company and how they responded or didn't respond to some of this. Yeah. This is uh, one of the interesting stories, and, and I think people will take uh, different lessons away from this. Uh, this was a board that was pretty much handpicked by, uh, by Jim and Mike. And um, it was kind of a hands-off board for a long time. Arguably, that that worked fine because uh, these two were such dynamic CEOs. But um, with governance, I think um, you don't need a board until you need a board sometimes. And uh, they were so uh, they were so lost dealing with this options scandal that uh, the first board meeting they had after the iPhone was introduced, they don't. There's no evidence they even talked about Apple. Um, there was a very damning report that came out um, that we unearthed for the first time in our book that took a, a rather scathing look at the board um, qualifications of some of the people on the board. And, um, you know, you get to a point in 2010 where the two sides of the house are, are arguing with each other over quality. And uh, Jim tried to uh, bring it to a head um, at the board level. And uh, on Mike's side of the shop, they were sort of they were kind of downplaying the problem and you see the board not really asking a lot of questions being reluctant to take sides uh, they eventually got proactive um but you get a sense of a, a board that wasn't all that effective when it needed to be and um, um I, I think you know you talk about case studies and i think the board's uh, conduct and their reaction through this will definitely fuel some some questions going forward You've talked a little bit about the storm, which was their initial response, but but their broader response once they got desperate was the BlackBerry 10, which took them six years to develop. Talk a little about that. Well, <laughs> think about it. The BlackBerry 10, it's amazing. Um, in retrospect, you think the BlackBerry 10 came out, uh, their phones came out in 2013. The iPhone came out in 2007. If, if you see this as the first true response from BlackBerry um, to Apple. I mean, six years is a lifetime in technology. At Google, the secret team that was working inside Google on Android, the moment they saw Steve Jobs on stage and uh, talking about the iPhone, they said, you know, we have to change our plans right away. They were actually working on a smartphone with a keyboard, and they just ditched that uh, almost immediately. So Google, uh, the folks in Silicon Valley, I think, could realize that this was a, uh, a paradigm shift underway. and. 
um, partially due to the dysfunction inside her and partially because Mike Lazary just felt he had to entirely change um, the way his software organization worked. Things got bogged down. They took, uh, they took a long time, and I, I don't think they really appreciated the urgency, the speed with which they had to move to, uh, um, to, to deal with this, uh, the way the, the business had changed around them. To what extent did the initial tremendous success of the BlackBerry among business users cause the company to really focus on business and really see that as their sweet spot and ignore and not understand the larger consumer market that Jobs understood so well? Well, you have to remember that by 2005, 2006, this was a company that was really shifting toward consumers. In fact, um, we got a sense that uh, their their business, their core business market was really starting to plateau around the, the late 2000s. They knew that this was where the growth was going to take them. And, and so they did introduce things like a camera, uh, media card, music player. Um, and it was the it was the state of the art at the moment, pre, pre-iPhone. I mean... Apple really brought a lot of innovations that uh, they wouldn't have been able to bring just a few years earlier because of um, developments in things like uh, battery um, uh, and chips. Uh, Apple famously had to uh, find a type of glass to work on Gorilla Glass, which I think had been used on uh, bombers in the Second World War by Corning. Corning basically... um, sparked up a, a plant that, that I believe had been mothballed for years. So they brought a lot of different innovations and, and technology was moving uh, at such a pace that it would have even been hard to conceive of, uh, of a phone like the iPhone just a couple of years earlier. So RIM was, at the, uh, it was really at the vanguard of a consumer device that looked like the cutting edge as of the end of 2006. Um, and even you see reviews, Just we- it's amazing, just weeks before the iPhone comes out, there's a review talking about this new rollerball they had in the middle of the, the mm-hmm. new BlackBerry, the Pearl. And um, it was like a mouse rollerball. And they're saying, this is, the reviewer was saying, this is the future of technology. This is going to propel smartphone sales forward. Um, and, of course, history showed us otherwise. To what extent did being so far removed from Silicon Valley, being in, in Canada as they were, to, to what effect did that have on the company? That's a, you know, I think that's 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 really one of the great questions about um, about BlackBerry because um, they were quite defiantly proud of their roots in Waterloo, um, to the point even where you'd have companies um, from Silicon Valley or elsewhere in the states. Um, calling Jim Balsilli up to for a meeting, and uh, Jim would very stridently say, "That's great. When can you show up in Waterloo?" <laughs> he wasn't expected to fly down the, to them. They were expected to fly up to to see them. And and I think, in retrospect, um, there's a sense that maybe they should have had a better presence in Silicon Valley of, of some sort. The thing to remember too about Research in Motion is it's based in Canada. Canada does not have a lot of technology superstars. We had Nortel Networks that, that went through a difficult time and, and uh, um, basically doesn't really exist anymore. And uh, a lot of our technology companies up here have been snapped up by American companies like IBM or uh, um, Facebook, a, a whole variety. So this was a, I certainly think there was a bit of the, uh, the Canadian pride mixed in with that. Um, and don't forget also that Silicon Valley really woke up to the smartphone world with Apple's announcement in early 2007. So from outside Silicon Valley and even outside Apple, because this was a, a tightly kept secret what the plan was, 
I don't think anyone uh, had a sense of just how big and how um, how much of a seismic shift would Silicon Valley would actually bring to this market. This wasn't what, really what they were talking about in 2005, 2006. Beyond the disconnect from Silicon Valley in the technology world, there also seemed to be at least a disconnect from the carriers and what they were doing and what they were going to do and what they were looking at. Because again, it comes back to this initial reaction that, that BlackBerry had about the carriers that they would never be able to handle what Jobs was talking about. And that was really a, a, a misreading of that situation. Well, it's quite incredible because you have um, the carriers that were essentially breaking their own rules. I mean, RIM, uh, BlackBerry sort of butted up against this for years to the point where they, uh, the carriers didn't want them to have browsers. They didn't want them to sell apps. They didn't like paying this fee to, that, that RIM collected every, um, every month for their users. It was to the point where RIM actually had to secretly embed uh, these sleeper apps on the phones that um, – that would give people browsers and uh, icons for instant messaging services. So millions of these phones went out. We have this great little anecdote in the book how uh, BlackBerry sends out um, just a, a service update to, to customers over a weekend, and suddenly it lights up these sleeper apps, and, and people open up their smartphones the next time, and there's a browser. Now, it was a primitive browser compared to what Apple brought, but it was still a browser. It was still access to the Internet. And the carriers were furious when that happened. This is the kind of world that RIM was was working in. And uh, again, bandwidth was really um, was was really limited. And um, the way the BlackBerry used up used the system, it was very efficient. And Apple was going to do something very different. Apple managed to convince uh, Bell South um, to to give them a chance. And Mike Lazarus took one look at this and said, "This is really going to give AT&T, which bought Bell South, real headaches." And he was right. AT&T had terrible service ratings, and it was because Apple was eating up all the bandwidth. Calls were being dropped. Of, you know, the carrier and Apple were sued by, by customers. So um, it's hard to predict that uh, large, slow-moving carriers are going to break their own rules that they've been applying so uh, diligently to your company. Um, that's a real tough one to call, I think. Even when BlackBerry turned offshore and thought that they could develop a business or, or expand their business in China, that didn't work out so well either. Well, I had a strategy um, to get into the China market, and this is really at a point in the company's uh, development where you've got a house divided um, and, and strategic confusion. They're also developing their first tablet at this point, which, which was basically dead on arrival. Um, and part of the problem there was the, the two sides of the house divided. You have competing strategies. You have competing uh, agendas. You've got a lot of dysfunction happening within the company. Along comes this China strategy. Um, but, you know, at the end of this terrible year, 2011, where pretty much anything that can go wrong does go wrong, uh, Jim and Mike step down as CEOs. They're no longer the CEOs, and uh, Torsten Hines takes over. And one of the first things to go is this China strategy. Uh, there are reasons why it might have worked really well. There are reasons why it might not have worked very well. Certainly, um, the camp that was against it was worried about um, uh, about cannibalization of handset sales. That was a real that was a real uh, fear on the minds of a lot of people. Whereas Jim thought, you know, cannibalization may or may not happen, but we really have to move in a in a in a different direction. In that sense, he was channeling the the Silicon Valley uh, ethos of the of the pivot, but. 
arguably it's hard for a company with $20 billion in revenue that's still growing at that time to pivot and uh, make the argument to shareholders that that's the right thing to do. So I think you get a good sense of sympathy uh, and empathy for, for just how difficult it was to make um, a, a straight-up strategic decision for these guys, 2010, 2011. Where does Research in Motion, or BlackBerry as it is now, where do they stand today, and what, what do they have in terms of assets that are, that are <laughs> worth anything? Well, they have assets. Uh, that's the that's the good news for uh, certainly for shareholders and for fans of the company. Um, it starts at the top. They've got John Chen. Uh, John Chen turned around Sybase, the um, um, uh, the software company in Silicon Valley, very successfully sold it to SAP. He was a very capable turnaround artist, and we've already seen him take the costs down. Uh, the company is uh, profitable at an operational level. Uh, they have almost uh, they have a negligible market share. I think it's about half of one percent globally in the smartphone business. They have been releasing new devices. They're pretty good. I actually have one, the, the BlackBerry Classic, and I'm an old keyboard person, so I don't <laughs> mind it at all. Um, they have patents, thousands and thousands of patents. As we've seen, patents are worth a lot in the wireless business, and they've been fought over in, in major court battles uh, around the world. So they have a lot of those, and those would uh, arguably be worth something. And they're sitting on $3 billion in cash. So that buys you a lot of things. One thing it buys you is time. When you're managing your costs at a, uh, at a break-even basis and you've got $3 billion in cash, you've time to exhale and inhale. And even if the strategy they're on now, which is to build up their software uh, software revenues, even if that doesn't come through in six to eight months, John Chen could arguably uh, make another pivot. So uh, the company's down. It's not out. Um, it's got options. It's got some time. Not forever, but uh, we certainly haven't heard the last of BlackBerry. I was going to say, do you think the company will survive and uh, go on to, to do other things? I, at this point, I wouldn't bet against that. Um, I, there's been rumors of, of people who are of, of other companies that are interested in takeovers. Uh, so far, they've only been rumors and, and often denied. But uh, we get a sense that uh, my co-author Jackie McNish uh, and I, uh, who wrote the book with me, we have a sense that the company's ultimate uh, fate is probably to partner up with somebody else. They've got a committed long-term shareholder in a company from Toronto called Fairfax Financial, which really believes in the uh, the future of this company and uh, and certainly believes that the the shares are undervalued based on where they will be. So. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's what looks to be ahead. Have they done anything to increase their presence in Silicon Valley? They have. Uh, it's it, certainly with their shift to software and services. That's uh, uh, that that sort of tilts them towards Silicon Valley. Um, they're most recently the head of uh, public relations they've hired is uh, is a Silicon Valley person. John's actually John Chin is actually uh, uh, lives in on the West Coast and uh, and flies back quite regularly, and a lot of the people that he's brought into the company at the senior levels came from Sybase and SAP. So, so these are people who live on a, on a Pacific, uh, Pacific time. Sean Silkoff, his book is Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. Sean, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 